Hello and welcome to the Friday episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, what a week it's been, perhaps most dramatic since the full-scale invasion began 16 long months ago. The Wagner mutiny, Prigozhin's failed putsch, call it what you like, has exposed what looked like very serious weaknesses in the regime of Vladimir Putin, and many are predicting that it may well mark the end of his long rule. We'll be looking into how likely that is and how the end might come about. We'll be examining how things came to such a pass, analysing Putin's options and what the future holds for Prigozhin and Wagner, but also trying to see what this all means for Ukraine as their big push gathers momentum, with their forces taking back for the first time territories lost way back in 2014. But first, let's recap the wild and dramatic events of the last days, which not even the most imaginative scriptwriter could have invented. As the situation now stands, Yevgeny Prigozhin is still a player in the big game, despite the fact that his mutiny appears to have failed. And negotiations about his status and the status of Wagner are continuing. There have been reports that Prigozhin didn't hang around too long after his initial departure to Minsk. His private jet was reported to have taken off from an airfield in Belarus, off to Russia, went first to Moscow, and then immediately afterwards uh, left for St. Petersburg. Now, former Russian officer and prominent critical mill blogger, though still an ultra-nationalist, Igor Gherkin, is claiming that Prigozhin returned to Russia to negotiate with unspecified officials and Wagner associates. Now, the respected Institute for the Study of Warfare, which we often cite here, believes this is possible and that Prigozhin may have returned briefly to work out further details of the initial deal negotiated by the Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko. Now, on top of this, Russian sources continue to speculate on the specifics of this deal on June 28. A Wagner-affiliated Russian mill blogger posted an interview with a Belarusian Wagner fighter, wherein the fighter claimed that Wagner had opened a, and I quote, new combat direction in Belarus, and that some Wagner fighters will work in Russia, while some work in Belarus. Russian opposition outlet Medusa, citing a source within the Russian Ministry of Defense, claimed that only 1,000 Wagner fighters went to Belarus with Prigozhin. However, Belarusian opposition channel Belamova additionally claimed that satellite imagery from June 27 shows that the construction of a new military object in the Ozopovichy area that was not visible as of June 13 suggests that this might be a Wagner training camp in Belarus. Now, the idea that Belarus might become a jumping off point into Ukraine for Wagner is something that has occurred to many of our listeners, and we'll be discussing that later. Meanwhile, in Moscow, Putin is ostensibly in full control, though his public utterances on what happened and how he was dealing with it have raised far more questions than they've answered. So too, are his chief military commanders, uh, that's Shoigu and Gerasimov, both of whom, of course, have been relentlessly demonized by Prigozhin in his frequent obscenity-flecked ranks on social media. But it's clear that though the immediate crises may be over, the situation has changed markedly for the worse for Putin. And for the first time, voices are questioning his competence. Isn't that right, Saul? Yes, it is. We've been seeing unprecedented criticism in the Russian press, criticism of the way the coup unfolded. And such direct criticism of the authorities is extremely rare. And it came from two newspapers. The first from a Moscow daily newspaper said the failed coup would have, and I quote, profound political consequences. 
And it added, the highest authority in the country forgot about the fundamental incompatibility of the letters P and M, the concepts of private and military. And that, of course, is referring to Wagner PMC. The article went on to say a monopoly is always bad, but there is one good, even necessary monopoly, the monopoly of the state on legalized force. If there is not such a monopoly, then, as we have all just seen, the very existence of the state is under threat. I mean, that's quite a comment to be made by a Russian newspaper. Another Russian daily piped up with the complaint that neither the Kremlin nor the Ministry of Defense has provided a clear answer to the question of how 25,000 fighters and more than 1,500 pieces of equipment from Wagner could advance in columns unhindered from field camps near Luhansk, occupy the headquarters of the Southern Military District, and within a day be 200 kilometers from Moscow, in a separate article in the same newspaper, said the legal case against Prigozhin allegedly disappeared into the depths of the law enforcement system. And that seems to be true because as of Tuesday, the FSB, Russia's internal security service, confirmed that Prigozhin would not be facing any charges, which is in line, of course, with the deal that was struck. Whether Putin and the FSB will stick to that in the weeks to come is another matter. So what, Patrick, has Putin said about all of this? Well, he finally spoke on Monday night after his uh, spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, said he was going to make a, quote, series of important statements that, without exaggeration, will determine the fate of Russia. Well, as it turned out, Putin's uh, address was only five minutes long and it stopped far short of addressing key issues. Well, Putin was clearly uh, very angered with what was going on. His, his face was sort of exhibiting all the signs of sort of, of uh, rage and frustration. And uh, he, he used very strong language. He said all such blackmail attempts uh, like the mutiny were doomed to failure and added that the uh, rebels wanted Russians to fight each other, but they badly miscalculated. But the main thrust of the address was to try and separate the ordinary Wagner fighters from the leaders. And he said, we do know that the overwhelming majority of the Wagner group are also operators of Russia. They proved it by their courage on the battlefield. And he surmises they were being used. But despite all this, the fact that we've seen a kind of, you know, shoring up of, of uh, the optics anyway, it, it, from, from a sort of um, public consumption point of view, it seems that Putin's sort of firmly back in place. I still feel that really the game one way or another is up for him. Um I think everyone's by now cottoned on to this point that we've been making for weeks, if not months, which is, you know, what does it tell you about a regime that has to rely on mercenaries to play such an important role in the military affairs of the nation? It's surely a sign of fundamental weakness and uncertainty on the part of the man who's allowed all this to happen, i.e. Vladimir Putin. This has been a terrible miscalculation, his promotion of, of Prigozhin and Wagner. And it's now turned around to bite him. And I would argue that bite may well turn out to be fatal. So, you know, if you think about it, an, an autocrat like Putin can cow the masses by repression and, and a sort of regime of uh, misinformation. But even he relies on a certain degree of consent from those immediately around him uh, to carry on ruling. And this, is, of course, is the so-called Siloviki, the cabal of security chiefs, military figures, etc. Many of them, of course, ex-KGB officers who he, he grew up with, essentially. They all go back a long way together. Now, I was talking to Alan Phillips about this yesterday. Alan is a journalist, Russian expert, and the author of the brilliant book on uh, wartime Moscow called The Red Hotel. We had him on the big interview this week. And Alan makes the point that as long as Putin seemed to have a firm grip on power, thereby 
guaranteeing uh, the positions of this inner circle, their access to unbelievable wealth, and indeed, ultimately, their lives, um, he'd have their backing, but that's no longer the case. And the likelihood is that they've come to the conclusion that he's basically passed his sell-by date, and they'll be looking around for someone else inside their circle to replace him. Now, the timing for this is quite propitious. There are presidential elections coming up next March, and one likely scenario being mooted is that this inner cabal will put forward a candidate who will protect them and uh, make sure that this guy is elected. It's almost certainly going to be a male (laughs) and one of their own. So he'll be a sort of continuity candidate who will maintain the regime's repressive policies, no change there, but um, rule more efficiently. Now, what this means for Russia's war in Ukraine is um, anyone's guess. What do you make of that scenario at all? Basically agree with you, Patrick. I think he is a dead man walking. It's really a question of how long you're talking about elections coming up next year. An awful lot of lot can happen in that year. He will, of course, try and shore up his position. And you mentioned the, the sort of key people around him. They're going to make the calculation, will the removal of Putin be more destabilizing than keeping him. So it's not absolutely guaranteed. But if I was to put my money on it, this is the beginning of the end for Putin. One interesting extra consideration, in my view, Patrick, is what this might do for uh, Russia's involvement in the war in Ukraine. It's gone incredibly badly. It's not likely, frankly, to go much better unless, you know, the ultimate calculation is that, you know, the Republicans get in in the states and, and they pull back on military power that's a long way off too. So one I suspect could happen if there is a palace coup and Putin is removed is that the replacement regime or individual will take the opportunity to distance themselves from this ill-judged invasion of Ukraine and negotiate some kind of way out of it. Uh, Whether the terms on offer to the Ukrainians will be acceptable is another matter. But of course, it is a possibility. Putin in power, it's almost impossible for him to leave the war with anything other than something that he might perceive to be a victory. So we could see a tiny chink of light, but there are a lot of ifs and buts here, Patrick, and a lot of ground to cover before that's going to happen. Absolutely. But there are also opportunities and a few, as you say, flickers of light on the horizon. Now, just a quick word about the presidency, because it's not something that we know much about, is it, the way that Russian politics operates? It does. There are sort of certain rules in a way. The Russian presidency itself is, of course, a recent creation. It only goes back to... 1991. Uh, It's a very, very powerful position. Uh, The first president, of course, was Boris Yeltsin, uh, who was then succeeded by Putin at the turn of the century. But because of constitutional restrictions on multiple successive terms, he couldn't, he had to stand down for a while, essentially, and put a stooge in until he was able to then come back again in May 2012. And he's been there ever since, of course. Now, elections are are direct. Uh, There are two rounds if there's no outright winner in the first one. The last ones were in 2018. Uh, There were actually, there are multiple candidates. There were eight initial candidates from various parties in that. But Putin won overwhelmingly with 77% of the vote, I think. Well, there were plenty of irregularities and claims of fraud and so forth. But I think the, uh, the point is that the system is so efficient that they didn't really need to be too outrageous in their... Uh, finagling, as Putin was still very popular. Now, I think our crystal ball doesn't really function very efficiently when, when we're trying to peer more than a few hundred yards ahead of us, as you were saying, Saul, uh, given the current chaos. But I would venture to say that um, any candidate coming forward on a liberalising manifesto in the next elections will not get very far. 
ever since the chaos of the 1990s, uh, the population, and especially the older voters, uh, want what they really want is stability and a guarantee that you know they're not going to be returned uh, to the turmoil of those years. Uh, basically, they just want to get properly paid, uh, that you know services will fu- basically function at some sort of level. And you know the depressing fact is that the war is not that unpopular. Many have bought the line uh, from the Kremlin that Russia is the victim, uh, and what they really want to do. Uh, is just for the war to be prosecuted uh, more efficiently, or until recently this was the case. But going back to the present, where do you think the crisis leaves Prigozhin and Wagner? Well, first, let's do a quick recap on the terms of the alleged deal that halted Prigozhin's forces just 150 miles from Moscow. Now, it was brokered, as we now know, by Alexander Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, and it seemed to offer Prigozhin and his fighters an amnesty and refuge in Belarus if they called off their mutiny. There are some suggestions that Putin also agreed to change some of the top people in his military leadership, including, of course, the main targets of Prigozhin's ire, Shoigu and Gerasimov. But at the time of recording, they are still in post. We are hearing, nevertheless, from Russian mill bloggers that the rebellion has prompted what are described as large-scale purges among the command cadre of the Russian armed forces. One claim that the MOD's indecisiveness has sparked some serious changes and that Colonel General Mikhail Teplinsky has taken over as overall theatre commander in Ukraine from Chief of the General Staff and current overall theatre commander, General Valery Gerasimov. And that's to take place on an unspecified date, but, but almost certainly after the rebellion. The mill blogger emphasized that Gerasimov will retain his post as chief of the general staff. Now, there are also reports that General Sergei Sorovakin, General Armageddon, who we've mentioned a number of times, a close associate of Prigozhin, was arrested for complicity in the rebellion. He did, of course, broadcast a call to the Wagner fighters to lay down their arms, but that might have been issued under duress or to prove his loyalty after he was rumbled. Well, frankly, at this stage, it's all as clear as mud, isn't it, Saul? Although the overall impression uh, is of continuing turmoil, and I think the story has a long way to run before the true picture finally emerges. Now, let's turn at last to the battlefield. The big news this week is that Ukrainian forces have for the first time liberated territory, which had been under Russian control since uh, 2014. Now, this is a small patch of land. It's in an area near Krasnorivka, about 10 miles southwest of the city of Donetsk. And it was said to have been liberated last week by Ukrainian airborne forces. But the news was kept secret for tactical reasons. And a spokesman for the Ukrainian military said the land was recaptured in a well-prepared assault and that it was a symbolic moment, which indeed it was. Other gains were reported in at least four more sectors of the front, while Russia is pushing back a bit, there were continued limited ground attacks northwest of uh, Sayatove and south of Kremlinia. Is there more to come from Ukraine's counteroffensive? Well, I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. The main troop reserves have yet to be used, according to Ukraine's defence minister. And we still haven't seen all those you know, Western main battle tanks and the added resources actually thrown into the fray yet, have we, saw? No, and one uh, one interesting development, actually, at the detail of some of the advances you were mentioning, Patrick, is that Ukraine has conducted, and this is from the ISW2, limited probing attacks on the east, that is the left bank of the Dnipro River near the Antonovsky Bridge in the Kherson Oblast. This is significant because it's the first real indication that uh, Ukrainian forces are now on the east bank, the left bank, which means they don't have a river obstacle in, in their way. So if they can push out of that bridgehead, it could be a separate and 
important axis of, of advance. We'll have to watch developments there. We should also mention the grim news that Russia is continuing its bombardment of civilian targets. And the reality of what's going on uh, was brought home to us very starkly because our friend Colin Freeman of the Daily Telegraph, who gave such a brilliant interview last week, was caught up in the latest one, which killed 10 people, including twin 14-year-old girls. On Tuesday at 7pm, Colin and his translator were enjoying a break from reporting from the front line and browsing the menu in the Rio lounge bar in Kramatorsk in eastern Ukraine when he got a phone call. It was the opportunity to conduct an urgent interview on the far side of town, and as work comes first, both of them left. That call probably saved their lives, because shortly after they left, a thunderous explosion shook the city. A Russian missile, as we now know, had hit the bar they'd just left. Somewhere, writes Colin, in the middle of that wreckage, which firefighters were frankly hacking through with axes, was the table we'd been sitting at. We'd probably have been midway through our pizzas had hard work not taken precedence. It just underlines the extraordinary risk that journalists like Colin are prepared to take to report from conflict zones. We're hugely relieved, and needless to say, to know that Colin and his translator are safe, but many others perished in yet another example of Russia's despicable targeting of civilians. Yes, I'd just like to reinforce that point uh, about the the dangers that, that the media face there. I'm actually in Paris at the moment, and last night I met an old friend of mine, Pirate Irwin, who works for the French press agency Agence France Presse. Uh, his colleague, Armand Soldin, was killed uh, filming for AFP on the front lines in Ukraine at Chesiv Yar at the beginning of May. Now, Armand was of Bosnian origin. He, he was only 32 years old. Pirate is also a novelist, and he's dedicated his latest book to Arman, who uh, he points out was born in one European war, born during the siege of Sarajevo when it was uh, being attacked by the Serbs, and he's now died in another one. Uh, now, this leads me to something that I wanted to reference. I think everyone would agree that the peace that eventually emerges from this conflict is has to be an enduring one, so no more European wars. And I believe, and I think you do too, Saul, that this means an outright Ukrainian victory. Ukraine has to prevail, really, for that to come about. Uh, Chatham House, that's the uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs, have just put out an excellent report on what it thinks peace should look like, which echoes these views. And it disposes of eight fallacies which have been put forward by so-called realists. Uh, starting with the view repeated by expert analysts and politicians everywhere that Ukraine will have to settle at some point because all wars end by negotiation. And now this line has been parroted by many, including our own Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Well, the report points out, and we've said this many times as well, it's sim- that is simply not true when the stakes are very high. Wars do end in victory for one side and defeat for the other. And the most towering example of this, of course, being the Second World War, but it's also true of the American Civil War and the Napoleonic Wars. And other so-called realistic points that are put up from time to time also disposed of, you know, that Ukraine should cede territory for peace, that a Russian defeat would be more dangerous than a Russian victory. And uh, it concludes, the report concludes, I think this is worth quoting a little bit of, It's now or never for Ukraine. A protracted or frozen conflict benefits Russia and hurts Ukraine, as does a ceasefire or negotiated settlement on Russia's terms. If Ukraine is to avoid these outcomes and turn tenacious defence and incremental battlefield gains into outright victory, it needs far more ambitious international military insistence 
than it has received to date. Now, th- this report presents the case for an immediate and decisive increase in such support, seeks to dispel overhyped concerns about provoking Russia and counsels against accommodating Moscow's demands. So I think we'd all basically agree with that, wouldn't we, Saul? Um, and coming from Chatham House, it, it does carry considerable weight. We could have made those points ourselves, Patrick, and it, it's, I, I think it's tremendously powerful to have had them made by, as you say, such a, a respectable think tank. It, it really is undercutting the arguments that particularly the right in America are making. And actually, a lot of these points are addressed by our interviewer uh, on the big interview next week, who's a, a, a former protege of the founder of Fox News, who saw the light and is now uh, doing wonderful work in Ukraine. So do please listen to that. Well, that's enough for this part of the program. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' concerns about what the arrival of Wagner in Belarus means in the future uh, and the threats that this could pose for both Ukraine and world security more generally. Well, welcome back to the Friday episode of the Battleground Ukraine podcast. Uh, we've dealt with the news and now we're moving on to listeners' questions. And the first is from Dan from the UK. And his question is, with Russia's decreasing ability to project power abroad since their invasion of Ukraine, seen with their inability to repel the Wagner march on Moscow and routine partisan raids in the Belgorod region, why aren't Russian-occupied areas of other nations ousting the foothold that they have in their areas and capitalizing on Russia's weakness? And he lists a number of places where this could happen, Transnistria, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, uh, etc. And he goes on to say the same would apply for Chechnya. Why aren't the Chechens fighting for independence, given that the Chechen wars and the massacres in Grozny are still in living memory? They surely can't be diehard Russians now. Well, this is very complicated, isn't it, Patrick? I mean, there are two things going on here, I think, in Chechnya. On the one hand, you've got Kadyrov, who really owes his position to the Russians. He is, you know, and Putin. He is firmly entrenched with Russian power structures. But there's definitely a possibility that Kadyrov himself will see the opportunity to, you know, carve out some independence from Chechnya with himself at the head. That's one scenario I can see as not beyond the realms of possibility. The other one is that the genuine freedom fighters in Chechnya, the people who were crushed by Putin and Kadyrov in the original two wars that were fought in the 90s and the early 2000s, they might see an opportunity to push Kadyrov out uh, and then create some kind of Chechen state. So Dan is absolutely right to ask the question, uh, but I suspect that you're going to need a little bit more disarray in Moscow before anyone takes the chance of doing something there, including Kadyrov himself. Yeah, but I think that is uh, absolutely the way things will go. You know, as W.B. Yeats said, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. I mean, the the centre's grip on things is clearly slackening. And all those other nations that have been basically under the boot, the heel of uh, of Moscow for you know centuries, essentially, uh, I think will be asking some very serious questions about their own futures. Now, look, most of the messages we've received this week have really been focused on Rigozhin, Wagner, what's going on? What does Wagner's uh, arrival in Belarus mean? Uh, We've got numerous questions. Uh, There's Roger, there's Mark, Josh in Bristol, David Iser in Melbourne, Pedro in Washington, D.C., Matt Smith, and many many more. There are so many different questions. It's, it's basically, to sum them up, they're saying, does this mean 
that Wagner will now start using uh, Belarus as a launch point, really, to open up a northern front against Ukraine, you know, that, that border, which is very close to the capital, of course. Now, this is um, something that, that actually has, has gained a, a little bit of a foothold in people's thinking, as, as we heard earlier on. There are two main concerns, it seems. One is that Wagner will now use Belarus as a launch pad for attacks into northern Ukraine, opening up, as I say, a northern front. But there's also a connection between the recent announcement that nuclear weapons are being deployed into Belarus. This was something that uh, that Putin persuaded the uh, dictator Lukashenko to agree to. So a second concern is uh, this, I'll cite this one from Pedro. He says, we've recently heard about Russia deploying nuclear weapons in Belarus. Now Prigozhin is being offered control of a military base there after his mutiny my mind can't help but connecting some worrying dots. Could Putin be handing over tactical nukes to Wagner to do their dirty work of using them in Ukraine? Please tell me I'm crazy. Well, I'll, I'll start off. I, um, I think on that one, maybe that is a little bit far-fetched. But on this issue of the arrival of the Wagner forces in Belarus, I'm sure that the same thought has occurred to the Ukrainians that this may now be a signal that an, a front in the north is, is going to open up. I personally think it's unlikely. For one thing, we can uh, overestimate the strength of Wagner, even if they were planning to do that. The numbers are pretty vague, aren't they? The 25,000 is the top estimate, and they may be actually as few as 10,000 of them. Now, they've taken a severe battering in Bakhmut. But uh, looking at the, pol- the political picture, I think the last thing that Lukashenko needs is for uh, his country uh, to become part of the, of the battlefield, essentially. And despite all his pro-Kremlin rhetoric, he's actually done his best to keep Belarus out of the war. And this, as I say, would drag him straight into it. Some people have been suggesting also that there's some kind of you know massive piece of massive conspiracy involved here and that the whole mutiny was actually a put-up job and a ruse to actually shift uh, Wagner to this new location. But I think, you know, a scheme of that sort requires a very high degree of skill and sophistication. Whereas what we've seen actually in this story so far demonstrates the opposite. Uh, and I, I think what we've seen is is sort of bungling and chaos. You know, a ruse of this kind is simply beyond them. What do you think, Saul? Yeah, well, addressing the sort of three elements of the questions we're getting on Wagner in turn. One, was it a put-up job? Absolutely not. Uh, As you say, Patrick, complete chaos, the reverberation still being felt uh, in Russia. The deaths, let's not forget, of Russian servicemen, also an indication that the plane that was brought down was actually a vital command and communications plane. That's the latest information we're getting out of sources in Russia. Would the Russians have done all this in cahoots with Wagner as a kind of, you know, ruse? No, I'm not buying it. Uh, Lives were lost. This was absolutely real. As for the invasion of Ukraine from Belarus, well, you can't rule that out. But I think it's really a numbers game now, Patrick. You talked about, you know, up to 25,000, maybe as few as 10,000. But the latest sources we're getting from the actual number who followed Prigozhin, although we suspect Prigozhin is not in Belarus at the moment, is as small as a thousand. And even if it was 10,000, is this going to mean that Ukrainians are quaking in their boots? They've obviously got troops up north. They've had them there 
ever since the saber rattling of Belarus halfway through last year and towards the end of last year. And the likelihood that even if Wagner does invade, it's going to get very far, I suspect, is pretty minimal. And the third question, the nuclear weapons. Well, let's not forget that the Belarusians do not have control over those nuclear weapons. Lukashenko's admitted that. Moscow stated that it's, they're very much going to uh, remain under the control of the Russian armed forces in Belarus, and there are plenty of them there. Uh, and therefore, the likelihood that the Wagner are suddenly going to get their hands on them no, minimal fear of that. Uh, Pedro, you can sleep easy in your bed, in my view, at least for the foreseeable future. Let's see what happens. Let's see how many Wagner get into Belarus. But overall, my overall feeling about all of this is that uh, the net gainer in, in all of this is Ukraine. It's removed. Remember that the Wagner fighters were not on the front line. Okay, So it hasn't taken them out of the line of battle, but they could have come back into the front line at any point in their fully formed group. And they were comparatively speaking, the most effective fighting force the Russians had. And that is now splintered. So the net gainer, in my view, to reiterate, Patrick, is Ukraine. Yeah, I'd, I'd go along with that uh, completely, Saul. Now, there's a very cautionary message here from Ian MacDonald in Victoria, Australia. And this warns us against uh, the pitfalls or of the pitfalls of too much speculation. That's something I'm afraid we've been indulging in a bit uh, in this episode. He writes, like many of us, I spent a fascinating weekend listening to, to the airwaves full of pundits speculating on events and their possible outcomes, including the probable collapse of the Putin regime, etc., etc. I do not remember any one of them predicting what actually happened or indeed anything close to it. And he cites various things that weren't mentioned in their various uh, prognostications. And it always put me in mind, he says, of Churchill's observation that watching Kremlin politics, quotes, was like watching bulldogs fighting under a rug. The outcome was only known when the bones come out from under the rug, or words to that, that effect. Well, that's, uh, of course, we, we can all think of a few Churchill quotes on Russia. The famous one is that uh, Russia was a riddle inside a mystery wrapped in an enigma, which I think still holds true. And to that, I would add another old saw employed by Russia hands, which is that when Russia seems strong, it is weaker than it looks. And when it seems weak, it's actually stronger than it looks. So I think that is that is something to bear in mind, isn't it, Saul, that, okay, you know, I do think, I do actually genuinely believe that, that Putin is kind of approaching a, a state of being dead in the water, if you like, but maybe many a twist and turn before we actually get to his final demise. Yes, if we've had any criticism over the weeks, Patrick, occasionally on social media is that we appear to indulge in a little bit of wishful thinking. And I don't think we can deny that, frankly. I, I try and look at the news and analyse the news and events in as positive terms as I can, because actually, and this point does need to be stressed, everyone in the West needs to believe that the support from Ukraine can actually lead to a, a happy outcome. And it can, in that sense, be a self-fulfilling prophecy, Patrick. So if occasionally we do err on the side of, of optimism, there is a genuine reason for that. People need to believe Ukraine can win. And if they believe it can win, it might actually win, if that doesn't sound too contradictory. Um, OK, let's move on to Victor Silvan from Stockholm, because he's made the very good point, which I'm sure a lot of other listeners are thinking, which is that uh, given that <laughs> given that Wagner was able to advance so far, why on earth can't the Ukrainians do the same? 
he makes the point that, and I'll just read out a little bit of his message, Wagner almost managed to drive through in less than 24 hours. If Ukraine decided to make a run for it with a few brigades, they would be very likely to capture Moscow before Russia could muster any meaningful form of defense. And he goes on to you know, describe how that could take place. Well, it's not a mad argument. We've said before the biggest problem is the Ukrainians using Western kit in Russia. But what if, Patrick, they say, okay, we're just going to stick to our our original stuff, our, our Soviet kit, and we can still cause with possibly a brigade absolute chaos, I- even sending in the uh, the Russian freedom fighters with a little bit more support from air, possibly an artillery. Who knows? I'm absolutely convinced they'll be considering that. It's it's whether or not they're just going to rule it out because the optics won't be good from the West. It, you know, we can't we can't be absolutely sure what's being said behind the scenes, as it were, to the Ukrainians. But they must be considering that possible calculation. Yes. Well, we we have seen the restraints that Ukraine's put on itself eroding, haven't we, over the months? Uh, and who knows? Yeah, it would be the smart thing to do would be to have this as an option. Not necessarily. I mean, they, they're never going to have the capability to actually uh, control Moscow, to occupy Russia. Uh, but what they could do uh, is deliver a fatal blow to the Putin regime just by a, a sort of coup de main operation, which would reveal just how weak Putin's armies actually are. So I would think that would be something that will be occupying their minds at the moment. And yeah, I don't see why it shouldn't have some hope of success against that, of course, you know, given the shock to the system that the, the mutiny has delivered, there will, of course, be frantic attempts to, to try and do so, get some sort of arrangements in place to prevent a repetition from Ukraine. They'll be running through mines in Moscow as well. But uh, who, who knows? The story has taken such a dramatic turn that at the moment anything feels possible, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Now, we've got a question here from Chris, uh, and it's about who Wagner PMC actually recruits from, you know, where they come from. Are they a global organization hiring anyone who has a taste for fighting? Or do they source personnel from the former Soviet states only? Is it possible Westerners could be fighting in their ranks? I'm not going to rule anything absolutely out. I don't know the specific terms of service. But what we are pretty clear on, Patrick, is that most of the people in Wagner are either Russians by birth or Russian speaking. They seem to have a patriotic element. And one interesting bit of news that came out this week, which we haven't mentioned, actually, is that Putin, in an attempt to kind of try and discredit Prigozhin and possibly imply that he's been involved getting up to mischief in terms of embezzlement of funds, has admitted that the Russian state paid Wagner for the work it's done over the last year, a sum of $1 billion. Now, so what does that tell you? It tells you that Wagner is effectively an instrument of the state. And in that sense, most of the people, for obvious reasons, will be Russians within it. Is it possible, as Chris says, Westerners could be fighting in their ranks? It's possible. And it's possible in in Africa. But I haven't seen any firm indication that there are anything other than Russian speakers fighting for Wagner. Have you, Patrick? Uh, no, I haven't. I think it's it's pretty much a Russian concern. On the, you know, we often refer to these jailbirds that make up the numbers, and it, you know, by the end, a lot of a lot of their ex-service guys, people who'd actually joined Wagner because it's better paid than the conventional military, you know, classic sort of mercenaries, people who've actually got some training and and some uh, expertise and some knowledge and indeed combat experience, no doubt in Syria and elsewhere, they were thinned out in the early phases and. A figure I saw uh, for the composition of 
of convicts to the overall numbers recently was 80%. And that's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, basically, you do have you know, sweepings of Russian society uh, in uniform and fighting in what, as you said, Saul, is one of the more efficient uh, military outfits at, at the Kremlin's disposal. I'm going to move on to a question here from Bill in Ireland, a specific question. He says, when you and your contributors speak about the war, you always talk about men, essentially. My question is, what about the women? What, if anything, is known about the women on the front line in either army? Are the losses on a par with male soldiers? And he finishes, are women more or less prone to savagery or war crimes? Well, it's uh, hard to get figures on the Russians, but on the Ukrainian side, there are some quite uh, specific numbers. So it was recently said there are 42,000 women serving in the ranks of the Ukrainian armed forces, and 5,000 of those are on the front line. Now, this comes from the Deputy Defence Minister, Hannah Maliar, who we often quote, she says that, unfortunately, on the question of casualties, 107 women have been killed or injured. And she finishes, Ukrainian women defend the country just as men do. Now, Russia had about 40,000 uh, women in the services before the war. Compared to the overall numbers, that's a pretty low percentage uh, when you compare it with uh, Western armies. And this is actually a bit of a departure from Russian tradition, isn't it, Saul? I mean, we all remember the famous, you know, Red Army women soldiers and, and indeed pilots. There are, I think, some uh, women in frontline positions, and there have been reports of female fatalities. But the impression I get is that there are far fewer of them than there are among the Ukrainian forces. Now, as to women being being capable of atrocities, well, we only have to think back to the Second World War, to Ilse Koch, the German woman who was married to the camp commandant at Buchenwald, who was put on trial for atrocities after the war. And there were female guards, many female guards at the Auschwitz and Majdanek death camps. So yes, you know, Given the opportunity, uh, women would appear to be just as capable of uh, carrying out atrocities as men. Okay, we've had to cover a lot of ground this week, so uh, we think we better close down now. It's been an astonishing uh, series of events. Uh, we're watching closely to see what will happen. But do join us next Wednesday. We've got another great big interview. And, of course, we'll be summing up all the news and answering listeners' questions on Friday. And if there's an emergency, uh, some big news in between, we will, of course, be bringing you that in an emergency episode. But time will tell. Goodbye. <laughs>